Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 47 tonight. As I told you last week, Isaiah 47 is God placing curses on Babylon because Babylon and the Chaldeans had taken Jerusalem captive, had taken Judah, the southern kingdom, captive. And it was God's sovereign purpose and intention that Babylon conquer Jerusalem. And yet because of the hardness of heart with which Babylon did conquer Jerusalem, now God is going to hold Babylon culpable and responsible for the way that they treated Judah. The language is somewhat poetic. I'm hoping to get as far as the middle of chapter 48, because even though it's poetic, it's not difficult to understand. Chapter 47 is pretty straightforward. Chapter 48, starting at verse 10, God speaking to Israel has just gotten done saying, essentially, that they deserve his wrath. In verse 9, he says, For the sake of my name, I'll delay my wrath. For my own praise, I restrain it, or I restrain my wrath for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? We're beginning with that promise from God because that's where I intend to end tonight is at that promise of God. And you're going to see the declaration of the defeat of Babylon in chapter 47. And then you're going to see God holding Israel guilty and responsible in chapter 48. And then God's conclusion finally is that for his own sake, he's going to act because his name will not be profaned. And if he were to choose his people, Israel, place his name on Israel create the place where his name is worshipped in Jerusalem, and then let it all be destroyed, let it all be profaned, that's tantamount to saying that somebody else's glory became greater than his own glory, and he said, I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. In other words, God is always going to come out on top, and if he has determined that a certain people are his, then those people are his. Do me a favor, Tom, if you would, Look up the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'm looking for verse 20, I do believe, but you could read 19 and 20 just for a little bit of context. Because here Paul is going to tell us that the church itself is based on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. 
Here, read it for us, if you would. We'll start at 19, I guess. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So it's all built on Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. But the foundation then of the church, he says, is the apostles and the prophets. What does he mean by that? When he's referring to the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets. The scripture, the Old Testament, the scripture that was extant at the time that Paul was writing, went by the nickname, as you know, the Law and the Prophets sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets in the writing. The prophets are the ones who give us the evidences of who the Christ is, that Christ the Messiah is going to fulfill all of these particular things that they laid out, like where he was going to be born, or that he was going to die and resurrect again, or in his death, that he was going to be buried with a rich man in his death. All of these clues, all of these indications of who the Messiah actually is, the certain events that the Messiah has to fulfill in order to demonstrate that he is the actual Son of God and the actual Messiah, those things are all told to us by the prophets. The apostles are the ones who actually lived with Jesus, were with him during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. They're the ones who can testify to the fact that Jesus actually did fulfill those things that were written by the prophets. So it is the foundation of what the prophets said and what the apostles observed and then told us, told the church. That's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church for 2,000 years has pointed to what the prophets have to say about the Messiah as the proofs, as the evidences that Jesus, unlike anybody else in human history, has actually satisfied those details that the prophets laid out. That's the evidence that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the Son of God. The prophets also tell us things about Jesus in his return. Things like they will look on him whom they have pierced and weep, or that he's coming back in clouds of glory, or that he's going to be David's greater son sitting on David's throne. And the church has also pointed to those things in order to say that the Messiah is coming back to do certain things, to establish certain things. And the reason they know that is because the prophets have said it. The very same prophets who said he's going to accomplish these particular things he came to the planet and actually accomplished those particular things in reality, in history, very literally, very genuinely, very physically. He actually accomplished those things. So the anticipation, the expectation is that when he comes back, he's also going to very physically, very genuinely fulfill those other things that the prophets have said. But for some reason, when those very self-same prophets who the church has leaned on, who are the very foundation of the church, along with the apostles, when those very same prophets all speak with that unified voice that speaks of a future for national Israel and a glorious kingdom to come, for some reason the church just 
doesn't seem to believe that. They believe two-thirds of it. They believe that this is the evidence of the Messiah to come, and then he actually did come and fulfill those things. And they believe that evidence. And they believe that Jesus is going to return, because after all, the prophets said so. But when the same prophets say something like what we just read, for my own sake, I'm going to act. How will my name be profaned? My glory will not be given to another. I'm going to refine you. I'm going to do it for my own praise. And I'm going to restrain my wrath from you, Israel. How many times, just in the book of Isaiah so far, have we seen these promises over and over and over again that even though Israel is phenomenally guilty and he keeps telling them how guilty they are, nevertheless, God keeps saying, for my own sake, for my own name's sake, for my own reputation, so that it can't be said about me that I did not save the people who I chose, the people who I placed my name on. For all those reasons, for the reputation of God, he says, there is still this glorious future waiting for you. And that's the part that for some reason the church has struggled with for the last 2,000 years. Whether you want to say that it's anti-Semitism that's running through the church You can actually point at it. You can go back and you can read historically about the city of God. You can read the theology of Augustine. You can see why the church took a turn away from the literal reading of the Bible and started reading it more allegorically. You can see the rise of amillennialism. You can read even Luther writing against the Jews and saying quite terrible things about them. So you can see that creeping anti-Israel theology growing in the church and then the rise of the theology that says the church is now Israel. Now, importantly, the prophets all speak with one voice in saying God will not give up on Israel. It couldn't be any more clear in Jeremiah 31 when he says, if the waves ever stop rolling... If the seasons ever stop, the sun and the moon, if that ever stops, he says, that's when Israel will cease to be a nation before me. And since those things haven't stopped, Israel is still a nation before God. These very clear, very didactic, very plain statements, like what we're reading here in Isaiah, those statements become undermined by statements that the Bible never makes. There's no writer in the Old or the New Testament who ever says the church has now replaced Israel in God's economy. And the promises that were made to Israel actually belong to the church in some sort of spiritual or allegorical way. The things that the Bible does say is what the church ought to be declaring, ought to be recognizing as true, and we ought to recognize that the same God who has accomplished all these things on behalf of Israel is the very same God who has promised Israel this glorious future and there's no way around it and there's no way around the fact that the tribulation to come the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again that that time of trouble is Jacob's trouble and that he'll be delivered through it or that Jesus when he refers to coming back with his angels and gathering his elect from the four winds of heaven that his elect at that point are only Israel. It's unavoidable. The church doesn't exist yet. So why am I ranting and raving about that? 
Well, because once again, we're going to see tonight, by the time we close, that God is going to say, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who come forth from the loins of Judah, so that's particularly the Jews, particularly the tribe of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord. You act like you're all for Yahweh, and you invoke the God of Israel. You talk about the God of Israel, but not in truth and not in righteousness. You call yourselves by the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and you lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then he goes on to say, I declared the former things a long time ago, but then you became obstinate and hard-hearted, and your neck was like an iron sinew, and your forehead was hard. It was like bronze. Therefore, I declared to you a long time ago, And I proclaimed to you a long time ago that you were going to go into Babylon, that you were going to go through this captivity. And at the same time, I said that I was going to gather you and restore you. It was 70 years that you were going to be in Babylon. And why did I then bring you back? For my own name's sake. Because I will not have people walking around on the planet saying, profaning my name and saying that I gave up on my people. Because he's not the kind of God who gives up on his people. And you ought to be very glad that he's the kind of God who doesn't give up on his people. Because if he could give up on Israel, he could just as easily give up on you. So I am arguing, and in fact the prophets are arguing. Just reading the Bible is arguing for a very, very consistent God. Who doesn't lose the people and doesn't change the plan that he has established since before the foundation of the world. And his plan is to give a glorious kingdom to national Israel. And David's greater son is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And the Gentile nations are going to get their blessings as they flow down through Jerusalem and out to the Gentile nations. That's what the Bible describes. And so I am arguing for a genuinely consistent, unchanging God whose word simply does not change no matter what. And that's the same God, and these are the same prophets who refer to Jesus when he comes as the Savior of Israel, as the Redeemer of Israel. We saw that a few weeks ago, that when they took him, when his parents took him into the temple, that the man who was waiting, Simeon, for the consolation of Israel, saw Jesus and said, now I can die. And so to extricate Jesus from Israel... And all the promises that the prophets have made to Israel when he himself came and said, I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. His intention is to fulfill everything that the apostles and the prophets have said because they are the very foundation of the church. And for some reason, the church has forgotten that that's their foundation. Got it? So now we're going to see it again. That's all I'm getting at. All that introduction was just to say, now we're going to see that again. And how many times have we seen it in the book of Isaiah? How many times have we seen it in Jeremiah? How many times have we seen it in Zechariah? How many times have we seen it in Daniel? How many times have we seen all the prophets saying the exact same thing? And yet there is this large sweeping denial of it within the church that supposedly belongs to that very God that is built on those very prophets. So let's start at chapter 47 of the book of Isaiah. God is going to say he's going to punish Babylon and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people group that at that moment were occupying Babylon. And so he's 
going to refer to them, to Babylon, as a virgin daughter. The virgin daughter of a king would have a life of untold luxury. The virgin daughter of a king would never do servile work. So the contrast that God's going to lay out here through Isaiah is to refer to Babylon, who've had this life of plenty and luxury, as becoming a servant, as becoming a slave. And he starts right out by saying, you're not going to sit on a throne anymore. You're going to sit on the ground. And in order to accomplish anything, it's not going to be done for you. You're the one that's going to have to do it. And you're going to have to flee. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Babylon is no longer going to be referred to. Specifically, the Chaldeans that are occupying Babylon are no longer going to be living that life of leisure, that life of luxury that they've been living up until now. Instead, verse 2 says, take the millstones and grind meal. Well, that's what servants do. That's not what virgin daughters of kings do. Remove your veil, strip off your skirt, and uncover the leg and cross the river. Now, by taking off the veil, tearing off the skirt so that you can run faster, uncovering your leg so that you can cross the river, that is all language of fleeing. That is all the language of you got to move and you're not going to care anymore about your fine clothing. It's going to be the last thing on your mind. You're going to strip off whatever is weighing you down and you're going to run. And you're going to be ashamed. Verse 3, your nakedness will be uncovered and your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and I will not spare a man. So God is going to take vengeance against Babylon. And at that very same moment, verse 4 seems to be what Israel is then going to declare as they see their captors being destroyed by the Medo-Persians. They're going to say, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Sabaoth, the one who is in charge of the armies in heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth, that's his name, and he's our redeemer. The same way that he redeemed us out of Egypt and brought us to the promised land, he's now redeeming us out of Babylon, and he's going to return us to our land after 70 years, just like he said, because he's our redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. Specific language the Holy One of Israel. Israel is counting on him to deliver them. Sit silently. This is God returning his attention to Babylon. Sit silently. Go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no more be called the queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned, I hurt, I punished my heritage. Notice that even though he has sent 
Judah into captivity because of the way that they didn't follow his law, because of the way that they chased after other gods, because of all the ways that they did not live up to his standards. Nevertheless, he refers to them as his personal heritage. That's why he's not going to give up on them. He said, I was angry at them. Oh, yes. I was angry with my people. They're still my people. I'm just angry at them. Whom the Lord loves, says the book of Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. It doesn't say he loses them, and you should be very happy about that. It doesn't say that he looks at somebody like Micah and says, well, now you're acting up too much, so I'm done with you. I wash my hands of you. Instead, he says, because you're mine, I'm not going to let you keep going that way. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to chasten you. I'm going to redirect you. But I'm not going to lose you. And that is the consistency of a God who doesn't change. By the way, if that's the way that he acts with those who are his in the book of Hebrews, then at what point in history did he change his mind so that he could say, now when it comes to Israel, when they act up, I'm going to lose them. But in the book of Hebrews, when mine act up, I'm only going to correct them, not lose them. If you say that he's treating Israel different than he's treating the church, you've got to say, well, then he changed. The God who doesn't change, changed. So what you read about him in Hebrews is just as true back here in Isaiah. It's the exact same God saying that the children of Israel are his people. He was angry with them. And so he punished his heritage and he gave them into Babylon's hand. So speaking first person to Babylon, he says, and I gave them into your hand and you did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Okay, Okay, so God cares so much about his people that he would punish them by sending them into Babylon and then punish Babylon for putting a heavy yoke on his people. Would you expect anything else? I mean, I can't imagine that the Babylonians would conquer a people, take them as slaves, and then say, now go easy on them. Mm. You know, get them all a luxurious chair and plenty of food and let them sit around all day. Instead, they do exactly what their very human, very sinful hearts desire to do, which is to conquer people and then put a heavy burden on them. And God says, because you did that and I allowed you to do that, I'm not going to punish you for doing that. And that goes right back again to Paul asking the question, how can God yet find fault seeing how no one has resisted his will. Because that's a question people would ask down through the ages. Wait, wait, God said we're going to do this, and then we did it, and now he's holding us guilty for doing it. So Paul puts it in the theological context and says, how is God going to find people guilty for only doing exactly what he determined they were going to do. And of course, Paul's answer is the same as all the Old Testament prophets answer, which is it doesn't matter if you can figure it out or not. He's God. He has all the power and authority, and he's already declared that he's going to do it. So that's the end of the argument. Who are you? Paul asks, who are you to answer against God? God. 
shall the one who's formed say to the one who forms it why are you making me like this hmm. and that's the exact same answer the prophets give they don't take the time to stop and explain now the reason theologically that God is going to be able to get away with this is because instead God simply declares I'm sovereign, I'm in charge, there's nobody like me, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use you to punish my people, and then I'm going to hold you accountable for punishing my people, and then I'm going to destroy you because you punished my people. And even though that doesn't seem rational to us, even though that doesn't sound fair or logical to us, God's answer always is, who are you? I'm God, and that's what I do. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage, gave them into your hand, and you did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy, and yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. I think the reason Isaiah mentions that is it's almost like saying, do you remember what God did when the children of Israel were taken away into the Assyrian captivity? Where's Assyria now? You didn't think about it. You didn't consider it. You took God's heritage and then you treated them badly just like the Assyrians did. You've learned nothing. You didn't remember it. You didn't consider it. Now then, verse 8, now then hear this, you sensual one. In other words, you that just live by your flesh, you that want all your fineries and your dainties, you who live this comfortable life. Hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. If that sounds familiar, it's because God has been saying in the last several chapters, I am, I'm the only one who is. And there's no one besides me. And he says, who are you going to compare me to? There's no one like me. So now he accuses Babylon of taking that attitude that only belongs to God and saying, look at me. I'm mighty. I'm powerful. I exist. I am. And there is no one besides me. And God's not about to share that glory with anybody else. Hmm. I shall not sit as a widow, says Babylon. Nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. Now he is mocking the magicians and the soothsayers of Babylon. If you know anything about the history of Babylon, you know that to this very day, we still talk about Babylonish mystery religion. The mystery religions that came out of Babylon were based in magic, in soothsaying and fortune tellers. It was based in the sorceries. Now, the Hebrew word here, sorceries, is only used three other times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used with a negative connotation. Every time it's knowing the future, determining the future by going to demons, by communing with the dead, by some other means other than going to the actual God who's in charge of history, 
but instead going through your sorceries and spells to try to divine what the future is going to be. So God mocking them here says, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells, I think God is being sarcastic there. He is mocking them because their spells, he's about to say, can't help you. When I come to punish you, your spells aren't going to be any help to you. Your magicians, your soothsayers are not going to be able to do anything. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. All this stuff you know, all this sorcery you know, all this stuff about demons, all this attempt to look into the future and cast spells, you consider that to be your wisdom and your great knowledge. And instead, he says, these are the things that have deluded you because you think you're doing it and no one sees you. But obviously, the God who is sees every bit of it. You have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. He's quoted that twice. So apparently it really got to him that Babylon in their haughtiness, in their pride, would take on the attitude of I exist and there's nobody like me. Mm. Only God gets to say I am and there's nobody like me. Who are you going to compare me to? You've said in your heart I am and there is no one besides me. But... Trouble, raw, evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. God, again, being kind of sarcastic, mocking them and saying, all your spells, all your charms, all your magic, you're not going to know what to do when the God who is all powerful brings his wrath upon you. When I bring my trouble on you, all of your little magic tricks are going to be no help to you. Mm. You will not know how to charm them away. Disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone and destruction about which you do not know. In other words, you can't make up for what's coming. You can't sacrifice enough animals. You can't attempt to atone for those. You can't try to bring yourself at one with God. You can't bring me enough, plead to me enough to make me stop the trouble that I'm going to bring into your lives because of everything you've done in the way that you have assigned yourself magical abilities and the way that you cast these spells and the way that you trust your sorceries and you trust your high walls and you trust your great wealth you trust in your horses and your armies and I'm going to come and destroy you all evil will come upon you which you will not know how to charm away disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone and destruction about which you do not know that will come upon you suddenly. And then again, because God is really good at mockery from his position of being the only all-powerful God, he says, so stand in your spells, which is really interesting. It's like, go ahead, do it. Break out your spells. Go ahead, stand on them and stand in your sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. 
Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you'll be able to cause fear and trembling. Go ahead, give it a shot. Try it. Stand in it. See if it's any help to you. You are wearied with your many counsels. Everybody getting together and making your plans and all your counselors who have not turned to God. Instead, where have they turned? They've turned to astrologers. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, let them stand up and save you from what is about to come upon you. You trusted in your sorcerers. You trusted in your astrologers. You trusted in your star readers. We have to remember that the stars on which astrology is based is part of God's creation. He's the one that put every star in his place, and he knows every star by name. And so if you think you're going to prophesy or call out the future by the stars, if you get up every morning and check your horoscope to see what the astrologers say, you have to remember that none of that has the authority that the word of God has because even those stars belong to God. He created them. He placed them. They're his stars. And yet people will look into the creation. They'll worship the creation instead of the creators, as Paul in the book of Romans. And they'll look at that thinking that that's going to give them some level of wisdom. So God in his mockery says, let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars and those who predict by the new moons, let them stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Obviously, the implication is they can't. They're no help to you because I'm God and they're not. Behold, they, the astrologers, they're going to become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. If they can't deliver themselves, how much hope are they going to have of delivering you? You put all your confidence in them? They can't deliver themselves from me. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. In other words, there's going to be no comfort. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way, and there is none who can save you. Okay, so there's God's declaration against Babylon. Because of the way you treated my people when I allowed you to actually conquer Jerusalem and take my people for 70 years into slavery in Babylon. Because of the way you treated them, I'm now going to bring destruction on you. And there's no one to save you. Quick question. Where's Babylon today? Gone. Gone. It's in the area of what we would know as Iraq. But there's no city of Babylon. There's no hanging gardens of Babylon over there. Babylon's been destroyed. Okay, so then that seems to me to be pretty darn good evidence that the God who said all of this in chapter 47 actually did it. In actual human history, in a very literal sense, destroyed Babylon, and there's nothing they could do about it. Before he destroyed Babylon entirely, he gave it over to the Medo-Persians. And then the Greeks came and conquered it. And then it just fell into disrepute and disrepair. 
and now doesn't even exist. So the God who literally said these things in chapter 47 actually literally did it in human history. What's the difference between chapter 47 and chapter 48? Nothing. There is no 48 in Isaiah's writing. He was not writing chapters. He then continues and just simply turns his attention to the house of Israel who he has just delivered. And he is going to say that they are also guilty, but that he's not going to give up on them. So I'm going to argue again. I know I'm being redundant. I know I'm being repetitive. But this is something that people argue about so much that I'm just arguing for basic biblical logic. If chapter 47 came true, chapter 48 has to come true. Has to. Or else God changed. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel. Now we know exactly who that is, by the way. He's not talking to the church here. He's talking about Jacob, and the church is never even the most adamant church Israel replacement person will never call the church Jacob. The church is not the heel catcher, the supplanter. Who came forth from the loins of Judah? Did the church come forth from the loins of Judah? Is this obvious enough? God is being very, very specific. He says, house of Jacob. Okay, that's all 12 tribes who are named Israel. Okay, that's all 12 tribes who came forth from the loins of Judah. Okay, that's one particular tribe now. That's the southern kingdom. That's the Judahites who came forth from the loins of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. Sure, they're religious. Sure, they go through the practices. Sure, they might sacrifice. Sure, they might show up for a holy day now and again. Hmm. But do they actually live a life that is grounded in the truth of God's word? Do they walk in righteousness? God has just said, no, you don't do any of that. You make a pretense of the religion, but you don't walk in righteousness. Okay, so that's the state of the Israel he's talking to. The Israel, the Judah that he is talking to, he's saying, yes, yes, you're religious. Yes, you keep the temple going. Yes, you do the sacrifices. But you don't walk after me. You're not keeping my law. You're not walking in righteousness. You're not following after the truth. And yet you have this religious pretense. Okay, so that's the hypocrisy of Israel at that moment. So do they, as a result of acting that way, do they deserve the wrath of God? Yeah, absolutely. That's what they deserve. The same wrath that came after Babylon. The same wrath that destroyed Babylon. They deserve that same wrath now. And God ought to destroy them the same way he destroyed Babylon. Because they're as unrighteous as the Chaldeans were. But does God destroy them? No. No. God makes a difference. For they call themselves after the holy city. They say they're from Jerusalem. And they lean on the God of Israel. They're willing to claim him when it's helpful to them. The Lord of hosts. Yahweh of Sabaoth is his name. 
And then God defends himself again. And this will sound very, very familiar because for the last several chapters, this is what we've been reading. God defending himself and saying, I can do whatever I want. I'm God. There's nobody like me. There's no one you can compare me with. I declared the former things long ago. In this particular context, I believe he is saying, I told you in advance about the Babylonian captivity. Through Jeremiah, he said, it's going to be 70 years before they even went in. And so before it even happened, God declared it. I declared the former things a long time ago. I told you about it before it happened. And they went forth. Those words, those declarations went forth from my mouth. And I proclaimed them. Notice, by the way. I love the language here. This is yet again evidence that God does not know the future in some mystical Gene Dixony sort of way. He doesn't just prophesy the future. He declares the future. He says, this is what's going to happen. And then because he has the almighty power to do whatever he wants, he makes sure that what he has declared actually comes to pass. And here is God himself saying, I declared it. I said it. I didn't look down the long telescope of history and see what was going to happen and then take a shot at it. I actually declare it's going to happen and then set about to do it. I proclaimed them. They went forth from my mouth. I proclaimed these things. And then suddenly I acted. And then those things came to pass. That's the way God works. He doesn't just prophesy the future like it's something that he knows that he is divined. It's something he has declared. This is what the future is. And then at some point in human history, he will actually act. And he said, suddenly I acted. That's right. Suddenly Babylon overtook Judah. 70 years later, suddenly the Medo-Persians took over Babylon and Cyrus let the Jews go. God said, I enter into human history, and suddenly I will act, and then the very things that I have declared come to pass. Why? Because I acted. That's the way human history actually works. Okay, so why did God declare it long ago and then act on it so that it would come to pass? Why? The next verse starts with, because... Because I know you. I know that you are obstinate. I know that your necks are an iron sinew and your forehead is like bronze, like brass. This is God's way of saying you're just hard headed and you're stiff necked. You have necks of iron. You will not bow your head to me. And you're obstinate. You're argumentative. You won't just do what I tell you. Do they deserve the wrath of God? Yes. Yeah. After a description like that? Yes, absolutely. They deserve the wrath of God. Because I know that you are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew. And your forehead is bronze. Therefore, I declared those things to you long ago. Before they took place. I proclaimed them to you. How? Through the prophets. I told you through my prophets what I was going to do. And then I actually did it so that you can go back and read what the prophets wrote 
and see that I told you all this before I did it so that it shouldn't be any surprise to you when I act suddenly and actually bring about the very things that I said were going to happen. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them. The thing that I made, the thing that I crafted, the things that I set up, they're responsible for the blessings that come into my life. They're responsible for the trouble that comes into my life. If things go bad in my life, if a child of mine gets sick, I have to appease my idol. I have to sacrifice to my idol. God knows that that's where their hearts are at. And so just so that you don't think that your idols did it, I declared to you in advance what I was going to do, and then I did it so that you know that it's me that's doing it, and who are you going to compare me to? I'm the only God who can act like this. Lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard. In other words, it's written down. The prophets have said it. The prophets wrote it down. Look at all this. God says, pay attention. Notice the fact that I said it. My prophets told you I said it. My prophets wrote it down so that when I did it, you could go back and read that I'm the very God who said I was going to do these very things. You've heard it. Look at it. And you... You Israelites, you Judahites, you who go around claiming to be mine, won't you declare it? Shouldn't you be the very first ones to say, our God did this. The God of Israel did this. The God of Israel has brought us through this trouble, and the God of Israel is the one who redeemed us. The God of Israel did all this. You've heard it. Look at it. And you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time. Okay, so now, having said, look at my history. Look at everything I said I was going to do. And then I did it. Now I'm going to tell you more stuff. I'm going to tell you about the future stuff. And you should know that I'm going to do the future stuff based on the fact that you've seen me already do the stuff I proclaimed to you before I did it, and then I did it, and I'm saying more stuff, so you can count on me doing it, because so far I haven't missed. They are created now, right now, and not long ago. I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And behold, today you have not heard about them. In other words, this is all new stuff, new revelation, new declarations from my prophets. And I want you to believe it. I want you to know I'm going to do it. I want you to have hope and confidence that I'm going to do it based on the fact that everything I said I was going to do in the past, I did. Before today, you haven't heard about it. Why? So that you won't say, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> You're likely to go, oh, oh, yeah, I knew it. Behold, I knew them. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I'm right on top of that. Instead, he says, I'm going to tell you completely different things, completely new things, new declarations that you didn't know up until today, so that when you've seen it and heard it, 
you can have confidence that I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove myself yet again and yet again and yet again. How often has God already in human history proved himself? And yet hard-hearted, stiff-necked, foreheads like brass people refuse to recognize that God has proven himself through all of human history. He keeps demonstrating himself. He keeps showing that he's the only God who can be like this. And yet people will go, oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Verse 8. No, you haven't. I threw that in. That was a little gemmerized version of it. You have not heard. You have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been open. Because I knew that you were going to deal very treacherously. And you have been called a rebel from your birth. Yeah, you've been called Israel from the very beginning. I changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then I'm going to keep referring to him as Jacob. And I've known what you are from the very beginning. I know that you're a rebel. I know that you're hard-hearted. I know that you're stiff-necked. I know that you are treacherous. Do they deserve God's wrath? Absolutely. They're as guilty as Babylon is. So now watch this. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. Several times through the years I have said that the deliverance that God offers isn't just deliverance from sin isn't just deliverance from hell. The deliverance that God offers is deliverance from himself, his wrath. He's the one that sends people into outer darkness. He's the one who executes his wrath and then can say of his church that they're not appointed to his wrath. God is the one who is the creator of all things, but he's also the one who corrects all things, who punishes all things, who delivers all things. He's the all and in all. He is the sovereign who is in control of everything. And so he could say, for the sake of my own name, for the sake of my own reputation, I'm going to delay my own wrath from you. And for my own praise, I'm going to restrain it for you. You deserve it. There's no question that you deserve it. So I'm not foregoing my wrath for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. Because that's the kind of God I am. When I declare that you are my chosen elect people, just like with the church, not appointed to wrath, Israel is not appointed to the wrath of God. For my praise, I will restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. If God poured out the wrath of God on Kenneth, that would be tantamount to God cutting Kenneth off. I mean, he can't say, I love you, I've redeemed you, I've sanctified you, now go to outer darkness. He can't say that. Instead, he has to say, yeah, you're a rebel, yeah, you're hard-hearted, yeah, you got a forehead that's like solid rock, yeah, all of that is true, yes, you're a rebel, yes, you can be treacherous, yes, you're a liar, yes, you're not always truthful, honest, righteous. Yes, all of that is true with you. So I'm not going to save you because of you. 
I'm going to save you for my own sake so that I get all the glory. And I'm not going to share that glory with anybody, including you. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. He gets all the praise. Well, that's the exact same way that he's dealing with Israel. In order that I may not cut you off. Is it fair to say that the church Israel replacement crowd, is it fair to say that they are arguing that God has cut off Israel? And that's even the language they use sometimes. God just said, I'm not going to cut you off. Jeremiah 31 still says what it says. I have not cut you off. And for that reason, I'm going to restrain my wrath from you for my own praise, for sake of my own name. And then behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. You can read plenty of commentaries and get several different interpretations of that passage. I think because he then says, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, tested, tried, purified you in the fire of affliction. I think what he's saying by way of contrast is, When you purify silver, it actually becomes more pure. When you put it in the fire and you burn off the dross, you get purer silver. But I put you, Israel, through the affliction, and you're not getting more righteous. You're not getting more pure. You're not getting any better. You can do that with metal, and you can't seem to do it with human beings. So, verse 11 For my own sake. And it's said twice. And it's in the Hebrew twice. For my own sake. And in case you missed it, for my own sake. When God says something twice, sit up and listen. For my own sake, I will act. This is the same God who said, I enter into human history and I act suddenly because I said I was going to do it. Here he has said he's going to redeem Israel and he's going to act suddenly. Why? For his own sake, for his own reputation, for his own name's sake. I will act. For how can my name be profaned? You can't profane the name of the Lord. He even made it one of the commandments not to take his name in vain. You can't say anything bad about God. And if he were to punish national Israel, if he were to cut off Judah... If he were to not keep his word after all the promises that he has made to national Israel, then people would be able to profane his name and say, well, that God who said he was going to do that never did do it. So he says, my name can't be profaned. That is yet more evidence that it's going to happen. To me, that sounds very much like when the church replacement folks say that God has cut off Israel or has divorced Israel or is done with Israel or has replaced Israel with the church. God says that is a profanation of his own name, Mm. his own reputation. Mm. Uh, That's dangerous ground. I don't want to be hanging around there. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Listen to me, O Jacob. Even Israel, whom I called, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, 
they stand together. So assemble all of you. Get together as a group and listen. Because who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him and he shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he will make his way successful. That's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to pick up right at verse 12 as God says, listen to me now, Jacob, and then declares, I can do what I want with you because I'm the one who founded the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. So assemble yourselves, come together, and listen to what I'm telling you. I am going to punish Babylon. I am going to save and redeem you because I'm God and I'm the only God who can act that way. That's where we'll pick up next week, God willing. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.